they can get a cheerleader a lot cheaper than me. All I'm looking for in deposition of the defendant is what it is I want to start my case with. It isn't about your war with that lawyer. It's about your war with injustice and your war for justice. And I'd say don't be worried about how you can maximize your fee in any one given deal. Think about your reputation long term. This is Wisdom on Trial, impacting your life and law practice. Welcome back. I hope you are excited to hear from uh, federal judge Skip Dalton. I had uh, the opportunity to interview Judge Dalton in his courtroom in the federal courthouse in Orlando, and he was very gracious and uh, honest with lots of good stuff. Uh, Judge Dalton has always been a really impactful uh, person in my career. I met him as a first-year lawyer, and I've always looked at him as the kind of lawyer we all ought to strive to be. He's a member of the American College of Trial Lawyers. He's a double gator. He served as a special counsel to a United States senator, and he's currently serving as a federal district judge in the Middle District, uh, having been confirmed by the United States Senate in 2011. Uh, Judge Dalton shares some practical wisdom ranging from career advice uh, to uh, parenting advice to effective deposition handling to good writing. There will be something here to help you. Enjoy. Well, I am so happy today to be with uh, Judge Skip Dalton in this uh, wonderful uh, courtroom in the Middle District of Florida. Thank you for uh, talking with us today. My pleasure. Um, I was trying to think of where to start and I figured I might as well start with how do you get the nickname uh, Skip? I know your name is Roy, but how do you get the nickname Skip? Well, my uh, father was a naval aviator. I uh, was killed in a service-related crash when I was very young, but uh, when I was uh, born, yeah, he was the uh, commanding officer of a uh, squadron in uh, the Navy. Uh, he was a pilot in World War II and uh, after World War II uh, came back and uh, was in uh, the reserves for a while and then went back on active duty and so uh, when I was born he was the skipper of the squadron so uh, when I was born his Navy pals began to refer to me as a little skipper and uh, for good or ill it stuck. Uh, fortunately I was able to lose the skipper part and uh, have it shortened to skip but I've been known by Skip ever since I was a little child, so yes. uh, uh, it seems to suit me, and I'm happy to have it. Yes, and then uh, I know um, at one of your children was a naval aviator as well. Right, my oldest boy uh, followed in his grandfather's footsteps. He went to the, uh, he actually, my, my, grand, my father did not go to the Naval Academy, but my son did. He graduated from the United States Naval Academy and then went on to flight training and he is actually about to be a skipper himself. He is about to take command here at the end of this year of a special operations uh, helicopter squadron in San Diego. So that'll be an interesting irony. We'll be once again have two skips in the family. Well, congratulations. Thank you very much. Let, let me ask you uh, just for people that may not have a backdrop for what it's like to be a federal district judge. Um, First of all, I've got to ask you, what's it like to have lifetime tenure? It's, uh, I mean, it's, it's certainly liberating in a lot of respects, uh, maybe the right, right word for it. Uh, you can 
when you're in the position, uh, of course, I, I guess anyone would say, of course, you feel that way. But but you do appreciate the wisdom of the founders in instilling in Article Three judges uh, life tenure uh, because so many of the decisions that you're required to make uh, that come across your desk are significant and they're meaningful. Uh, a lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them have, uh, you know, either social, political, or certainly economic uh, impact or uh, are impactful to the litigants and, and sometimes, oftentimes, to uh, folks outside uh, the courtroom as well. And uh, it, it does it does free you up, you know, in terms of being able to, to work hard to try to get it right and to make the decision that's the correct decision. Um, sometimes the decision that you make is uh, to the consternation of uh, people that perhaps knew you before you were on the court. I find that from time to time, you know, people that you know knew that I had predominantly a, a plaintiff's practice uh, always seem somewhat surprised that I could ever find in favor of the defendant, uh, you know, but. Did you forget your roots? Is that what they... I hear that sometimes. Yes. I hear that sometimes. I enjoy it a great deal because I was always invested and continue to be very invested in the art of advocacy and what separates good advocates from indifferent advocates, uh, good practice from bad practice. Uh, and to be able to actually watch it happen is a, it's, it's a great seat. It's like being a ringmaster at uh, you know, a circus with some of the greatest acts in the world. If we take a, the, the group of young lawyers coming out and let's just assume they came to you and they wanted advice, what are the kinds of things that they might be able to do that could help give them some of that experience? Well, some of this would require the cooperation of their firms, but I think if the firms would look at it uh, in terms of developing and retaining talent, I mean, let's face it, if you want to be fulfilled as a lawyer, if you want to be a trial lawyer and you spend... 95% of your career shuffling paper or doing document production or sitting in depositions, it's easy to understand why people would burn out in terms of uh, wanting to continue in the profession because everybody wants to be doing meaningful, significant work. And um, so what I would tell the senior lawyers is you need to let these young people do what they want to do and what they need to do, which would include things like Get yourself on the CJA list, the, uh, you know, the, the opportunity to come over here and be a court appointed to represent uh, either an indigent in a civil case or uh, take, you know, take on a pro se case, take on criminal defense. Uh, I know uh, it dovetails with some other advice that I would give to young lawyers uh, it, is you've got to look up from what's on the top of your desk if you're going to be successful in the long run. You've got to pay attention not only to what's happening in your law practice or in your law firm, but what's happening in your community, what's happening in your neighborhood, what's happening in your, your state, your county, your world, um, because uh, all of those things impact uh, not only the way you do your work, but they impact your quality of life, which is going to give you some longevity in the profession. And that same advice I would give to a young lawyer is don't, don't let them, and certainly don't do it to yourself, pigeonhole you that I am a fill-in-the-blank lawyer, I'm a transactional lawyer, I'm a commercial litigator, I do mechanics lien work, I do exclusively personal injury work, I do exclusively criminal defense work. How in the world do you know that you want to be a trial lawyer if you don't ever do it? How do, you, how do you know whether you would be a good trial lawyer if you don't ever do it? By the same token, um, if you, if, if you 
if you limit yourself, if you cabin your own work in such a way that you never take a risk, and take a risk in the sense that, uh, I mean, we all know what it's like. I mean, it's, it's, everybody is apprehensive when they get into an area where they think they don't know everything. Yes. And if we're honest about it, we don't know everything about anything. <laughs> so uh, that's a poor excuse not to take on a new challenge. As I tell people in the CG, CJA context, you know, I can assure you that being represented by somebody with your skill and intellect, even though you may have no experience in the area of, let's say, criminal defense, this defendant's far better off than he or she is with no advocate. And, and for people that don't know what CJA is, can you give the... Right. So the Criminal Justice Act, which is what CJA stands for, provides uh, for the appointment of private lawyers in circumstances where the federal defender has a conflict, and that arises all of the time, as you might imagine. Uh, many times the, uh, the United States will indict uh, multi-defendants uh, in a large, uh, let's say, drug conspiracy case. I just had one... I just had an indictment across my desk yesterday involving 11 defendants uh, in a crim criminal uh, drug trafficking organization conspiracy. That's just one example. All of those folks are entitled to lawyers. The Criminal Justice Act uh, provides the opportunity for them to retain private lawyers when the federal defender has a conflict. And so those private lawyers uh, come over and they get on a list and the list is uh, maintained by our magistrate judges who are, of course, the front line in the criminal cases and the magistrate judges, once they um, either identify themselves or in most cases the federal defender identifies that they have a conflict because they're already representing one member of that group, uh, then the magistrate judge, he or she will make an assignment and assign a private lawyer uh, to come in and represent the next defendant and then in seriatim down the list, the next lawyer for the next uh, defendant. I love you talking about the criminal piece because when I look at your career, I think, I know you did eminent domain, commercial litigation, medical malpractice, all kinds of work, but the bulk was was plaintiff's work. Would that be accurate? Yes, I think that's a good, I had, a, I had what I would call an eclectic uh, legal practice, uh, but certainly the the mainstay of it was, you know, plaintiff's personal injury work with a lot of uh, other things along the way. But I happen to know you did a criminal case as well, which was in the paper in a pretty prominent case. Can you t tell us just a little bit about that case? Sure. Um, uh, at the time, I was going to church at St. Michael's Episcopal Church right there in my neighborhood, and uh, uh, there was a young physician in his family that also went there, and uh, he uh, was a pediatric orthopedist and had been uh, trained at uh, all the fine institutions. I think he, I know he'd gone to John, Johns Hopkins for part of his training. And um, in any event, he had uh, uh, part of his practice was treating uh, children that were afflicted with uh, cerebral palsy and uh, other disabilities. And he was very involved in um, recording their gait and uh, their motor function and um, their spine. He was, uh, by virtue of his training, he, uh, he did not he did not use a lot of x-ray, which as a parent I uh, kind of appreciated. I thought it was interesting that he was, you know, had the mindfulness, you know, to appreciate that constant exposure to x-rays for these children might uh, not be a good thing for them, uh, might not be beneficial in the long run. Anyway, so he developed this uh, 
program where he used photography and he used what's called moray photography, which really is, a, I mean, people, some people look at it and think it's, you know, it's voodoo, uh, but, uh, you know, you put a board that's got wavy lines on the back of it and then you take a photograph of the individual in front of that board and by comparison to, you know, the, the where the hip joint lines up with the line on the board in the back and you measure that over time, um, people that are well trained in it uh, find it to be a useful tool. In any event, uh, there was a, an allegation made against him by uh, one of his patients that he had taken a photograph that was inappropriate. And uh, that the mother of that child went to the police department and the police um, couldn't understand why an uh, orthopedic surgeon would be taking photographs of children in stages of undress. Uh, he he uh, was not really ever given an opportunity to explain that uh, he used these photographs in order to measure growth and to treat the children. Uh, anyway, so it, it cascaded from that point. Once you accuse someone of being a, a pedophile, which is essentially what the newspapers uh, accused him of, and the police department was fully on board with the fact that he was uh, you know, preying on children under the guise of providing them with medical services, it turned into a great, to a real Donnybrook. And as you might imagine, it was ruinous to his to his uh, practice, except for the fact that there was a large coterie of patients that uh, were uh, devoted to this physician because uh, the way he took care of their children. So he was a member of my church and uh, I knew him. I referred him at the time to Jim Russ, who was, uh, and still is, uh, Jim is older and retired uh, now, but uh, Jim was a preeminent criminal defense lawyer and Kirk Kirkconnell, who's now uh, passed on. Uh, Kirk also, as a former amazing FBI lawyer. agent, was an amazingly good lawyer. So uh, I referred the case to Jim Russ, thinking, okay, well, I've, I've, I've done my duty, and, you know, uh, he's in good hands. And as the case then went on, it was obvious that it was going to have a, lo a lot of medical, uh, there, were gonna be a need, there was going to be a need for medical experts and uh, knowledge of orthopedics. And so I, I, I had that because that was part of my practice. I did a lot of medical work, and they then they asked me if I would if I would get involved on the defense team. I did get involved on the defense team, and, and over time, kind of the Cliff's Notes version of it, I sort of became the, um, the 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 lead lawyer in terms of the courtroom presentation. And I didn't know anything about the criminal practice, and I worked hard to try to learn it. But I was blessed to have two of the best criminal defense yes. lawyers I think anywhere um, sitting at my shoulder. They were telling me what I needed to do uh, and making sure that I didn't make a misstep, you know, and that was incredibly valuable to me, but it was also an eye-opening experience uh, that uh, um, I think served me in good stead, continues to serve me in good stead today, is that, uh, you know, you can really do anything you put your mind to if you'll, if you'll take the time to teach yourself what you need to know, which I think any, any good trial lawyer understands that concept, that, uh, you may know nothing about the world of, uh, you know, biomedical uh, 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 science. You may not know nothing about uh, linear kinematics or occupant kinematics or accelerants or coefficients of friction or, you know, the strengths of materials and what's the difference in the tensile strength of this versus the tensile strength of that. But it's learnable, right? Yes. I mean, and so the key is to surround yourself with people that do know, that can teach you what you need to know. And it's been my experience that in, in most cases when you do that, by the time the, uh, the, the, 
by the, by the time the opportunity presents itself, uh, you're certainly capable of knowing as much about that little area as probably anybody in the room, which is not to say it makes you a uh, biomedical engineer or that it makes you a civil engineer or a structural engineer or a metallurgical engineer, but you are able to teach yourself enough about that area that you can effectively converse with somebody and you can identify flaws in their logic or in their analysis or in their methodology, which is what I think all good trial lawyers do. Have you had some low points during the course of your career? Sure. If, if you were to be vulnerable um, with the, the lowest point, and, and what I want to know is less about the low point and more about how you walked through it and walked out of it. Well, it's hard to do that. I can't because I can't do that if I carve out uh, my family and my faith. I can't. I can't give you a, an honest response. And, to the and you question. don't need to carve that out. But but uh, everybody has their low points, and I'm certainly no exception. Um, some some of the things that I did in my life that turned out to be, uh, as you sort of helped me describe, kind of the eclectic part of my practice, were if I'm honest about it. Uh, had their origin in a, in a certain dissatisfaction perhaps with where I was at the moment whether I was feeling burned out about uh, the practice of law or whether I was you know worn out about a bad outcome uh, whether I felt like I had uh, you know disappointed or you know, failed to deliver you know my best for uh, a client under one circumstance or another I didn't have that experience often but you can't you know, this is the kind of uh, business that you can't, uh, you know, you just don't, you don't win them all. Yes. Um, so uh, at, at those moments, um, certainly being able to look to my family and look to my faith as uh, recognizing that uh, I can do other things. Uh, I think you and I had this conversation at one time, you know, the things that you learn how to do as a lawyer are transferable skills. You can do other things. You just have to have, um, you know, the courage and maybe a little bit of help, encouragement from others. Uh, to trust yourself enough to step out. And so that's the way that I walked through those low periods is I found something else that was maybe a little bit different, um, that re-energized me, that refocused me, uh, that helped me appreciate the fact that uh, uh, what I was doing at the moment that I was down and depressed did not have to define me for the rest of my life. I don't have to continue to do that. If that one thing is, is a source of unhappiness for me, I can do something different. That happened to me at several, you know, that's happened to me many times in the course of my career. And uh, so it probably helps explain why, as so my children sometimes say, I have vocational ADD, uh, that uh, I've, done, I've done a lot of different things, and why, why I enjoy the stimulation of doing different things. I, I remember when I took my sabbatical and I was, uh really looking to do something uh, totally different. I'll, I'll never forget you telling me, listen, uh, lawyers, you know how to read a lot of information. You can synthesize it and process it, and then you can communicate and advocate for that. The world needs that. Yep. And it was, it was liberating for me to hear someone who I really respected and looked up to, to basically say to me, I don't know that you said this, but here's what I heard, um, you're not a slave to this profession. Well, it's very true. And I think, I think it is liberating. And, and, and there were times in the course of my practice, and I think if we're honest, we'll all, yes. you know, all acknowledge being there. However, you know, successful you may be in your practice, there are times 
when you begin to wonder whether or not what you're doing is significant work and you know is it just the is it mind numbing over time and uh, you know are you are you missing opportunities to do other things uh, especially when you're practicing law and you look around if you're doing what I think you should be doing which is looking up from your desk and looking at the world around you and you're seeing people doing things well and and doing things poorly you know that are important and when you think to yourself gee, if I only had the time or opportunity to maybe do some of these other things, maybe I could make a more important contribution. Well, two things. One is I think that's short-sighted in terms of the contributions that you're making when you're doing what you're doing in your practice. But we all, we all have that. We all second-guess that from time to time, I think, if we're honest about it. But the point I was making to you at the time, which I continue to reiterate to young lawyers today, is these are very transferable skills that you develop. And and all you need to do to employ them somewhere else is overcome your own reticence to move out of your comfort zone. You, to me, have always impressed me as somebody who's very confident. Uh, I sense you've been confident since you were younger. Um, am I accurate on that? Well, I hope, uh, I hope I'm confident. Um, I'm, I'm not cocky I don't want to be cocky or arrogant I think those are very uh, yeah I wasn't disarming <laughs> I mean th those are very uh, unattractive qualities uh, but I think confidence is, is very important I don't think you can be a trial lawyer if you're not if you don't have a certain level of confidence and um, but confidence goes hand in hand with competence and in order to be confident you need to be competent and so to be you can make yourself competent if you make yourself competent it will imbue confidence and so uh, but I have always, I think, had uh, a, a certain sense of appreciation that if I did the work, which I didn't always do, but if I did the work, that I could competently discharge, you know, the, the, the undertaking. In the moments um, that I know you have had and I have had and most of us who have been in battle have had, um, where you don't feel confident, um, in other words, you've been confident, but now you feel kind of exposed and vulnerable. Sure. What are some of the things in your career that you have done um, to move out of that, I hate to use the word insecure, but it's probably the truthful word. Sure, I think it's a good word. Yeah. Um, well, you know, a lot of it, there are a lot of different names for that. You know, people call it sometimes the imposter syndrome, you know, where you get into a situation where you think, I don't really, I'm in over my head here. I don't. I pretty much know. think that every day. Well, and, and I think, frankly, I think it's a good thing. Uh, I, I don't think it's a bad thing to constantly question yourself in terms of why, I mean, look around you. I think to myself, who in their right mind would invest, you know, this much responsibility in this individual? And then you have to stop for a minute and think, well, uh, the way you get past that, I think, the way you get past your own insecurity and is, is to persist, you know, persevere and move from first base to second base to third base and to try to, you know, to eat the elephant a bite at a time and eventually, you know, overcome that sense of insecurity that you don't, you, you, that you either don't have the resources, whether it's you know mental resources or the intelligence or the economic resources or uh, whatever it is that you think might be lacking, uh, that gives you that sense of insecurity, is that if you'll shorten your steps, you know, if you'll shorten your goals to things that are that are imminently doable, then you can become more confident. Uh, if you can shorten your goal to something that you know 
rather than looking long term on the horizon where you know that you need to go eventually to be successful in whatever it is you're doing to bring the horizon very close you know bring it inside the boat now yes. just do something that you know that you can do um, and and then just continue to do the things that you know you can do incrementally and then that will help you get out of the sense of feel the feeling of inadequacy that everybody has i think if, if you're honest everybody has it. that that's good um let me go to some very practical things let's let's start with this advice you would give the lawyers on client selection probably the most important decision a lawyer can make is uh how am I going to employ my resource, my most, my most critical resource, which is my own time and attention? Um, it's a very hard thing to do. Um, and usually we only learn how to do it by making mistakes. And we all know when we've made the mistakes, they, they usually become readily apparent. But I would say having early on the ability to be confident in your own judgment about taking clients on and the ability to say no. That transcends so much more than just client selection, by the way, um, is learning how to establish boundaries, how to, how to, how to be a um, really strict custodian of your own time, because it's the most precious resource that you have. And why on earth would you give it away uh, to something that's gonna be not only unrewarding economically, but potentially vexatious to the spirit uh, if you're involved in a client relationship that's um, not satisfactory. So, you know, instinct is a great thing. Uh, there's a reason that we have it. Uh, you know, it's whether you want to get to, you know, often the Darwinian weeds about uh, why human instinct uh, exists. Uh, instinct is a powerful thing. You should learn to be, listen, to be attentive to it, listen to your instinct, and act on it. You, uh, you were known when you were actively practicing as uh, being a particularly uh, skilled in the area of jury selection. Now you're a federal district judge who doesn't allow the lawyers to do as much jury selection as we should be allowed. That's for another day. Another one of those, what in the world happened to you? <laughs> what happened? Yeah. Um, what are the most important pieces that you've seen or personally experienced for jury selection? Personal connection is the most important part of jury selection. Personal connection in the sense that good lawyers are good storytellers. Good storytellers learn how to take an assortment of facts and put them together and weave them in such a way uh, that they tell a story that's persuasive and that's compelling. And they do that um, by drawing their audience in. And a good, a good lawyer during uh, the voir dire process uh, has the ability to make a personal connection with jurors in a way that's not contrived um, and is not artificial. Lots of lawyers fail because they try to do things that are unnatural to them. They try to do something that they read in a book or that they heard in a seminar that maybe worked for somebody else, but it's anathema to their own personality. And that's, that's a dead giveaway for somebody that's not, that doesn't understand that it's a personal connection. If you think about good storytellers, you know, they come in all shapes and sizes. They, you know, they're not tall or short or fat or thin or black or brown or white or yellow. Um, a good storyteller uh, has the ability to capture his or her audience and the quality of empathy is something that makes 
a person able to connect. So when jurors feel like that you believe what it is that you're describing to them, it's hard. It's it's very hard to um, carve that out later on. Yes. If jurors are willing to get invested in, in you, even if they maybe don't share your version of what's right or wrong, if they believe that you believe it with er- and that you're earnest about it, that they will credit that. They it's almost like it becomes a fact in the trial. Right. They'll credit you that, and they'll also credit your your version of events, which they may at some level question themselves, but, but they're, they're willing to give it a lot of legitimacy because you believe it. Depositions. Well, I think depositions are, are probably the most uh, abused, misused, overused uh, discovery tool in the lawyer's arsenal. Uh, depositions are invaluable uh, if they're done correctly. They are an incredible waste of time and money when they're done poorly without forethought. So the advice that I would give to any lawyer is whether you're taking the deposition or defending the deposition is understanding what it is that you want to accomplish. If you are defending a deposition, what you want to accomplish is essentially the same thing you want to accomplish in the courtroom, which is to, obviously, is to recognize the liabilities that your witness has, uh, where are they weak, where are they vulnerable, um, how can you best workshop that, and how can you get it out in a way that's clear, concise, that's not, that doesn't appear to be defensive, backpedaling, or um, dissembling in some way. And that takes a lot of witness preparation to do that, to make witnesses comfortable with the fact that this information is going to come out. It's not particularly helpful. Let's figure out how we deal with it and let's get it done. Let's get it done in the early part of the deposition. You know, let's, let's get it done. And also learning how to control your witness so that they don't do what I'm doing, which is to go on and on in response to a question. If you're taking a deposition, understand what it is that you need to accomplish. How do you know that? You got to be prepared. You have to know at the front end of your case, what are the elements that I need to establish in order to prevail? So I want to get that done, right? I mean, I need to I need to figure out what do I need to prove in order to prevail. Anything you can do after that, you know, is gravy. But let's get that done first. So much time in depositions is spent wandering around with the worry that a question is going to go unasked, perhaps that some senior partner is going to question, why, why didn't you get it done or why didn't you get that done? And uh, I see that as a product of lawyers taking depositions for other lawyers. I, I think that's inherently a bad practice. Uh, because the lawyer taking the deposition doesn't ever own it. And the only time you own the deposition is when you actually see the witness testifying in trial. Legal writing. Um, You've done a lot when you were practicing, and now you probably see a lot, good and bad. What's the key? The key to to, to good legal writing, to good writing in general, but to good legal writing, is to constantly be working to get better at it. I mean, that's, that's, that's truthfully the, the uh, what I think is um, the hallmark of a great writer, somebody that recognizes that this can always be better. And to, to be intentional about what you write. And by that I mean nothing written first draft is ever acceptable. It can always be improved. So if you're intentional about your own writing, it means being willing to take the time to go back through your own writing with a critical eye, potentially even to make yourself vulnerable to let others read what you've written 
and offer some constructive criticism. Uh, my experience in looking at the writing of others is in some way a reflection of our earlier conversation about confidence. Lawyers that write with confidence generally write in a much more persuasive and, and usually pithy way. Their briefs are uh, more concise, they're tighter, they're more persuasive, and they're shorter, al almost in every instance. And the other advice is don't be afraid to concede the obvious. Don't, don't, take, don't continue to argue positions that you've lost. If you have a position that is contrary, for instance, to binding precedent, acknowledge the fact that, that you, Judge Dalton, can't rule for me on this. But if you could, you should, and this is why. It's a great argument. Preserve it for appeal. Tell me, you know, essentially why you think the decision, the binding precedent is wrong, but don't give me a long argument that tries to persuade me that uh, I ought to do something that, for instance, the 11th Circuit of the United States Supreme Court has already clearly, clearly told me that I need to go the other direction. But being, being uh, intentional again about what your arguments are, putting your best argument first, and um, don't be tempted by the kitchen sink. Yes. How about negotiating? What advice would you give on the most effective tips in negotiating? Well, I think the best advice I got was to really work hard to try to figure out some thing or things that the other side wants. What, what, can the other, what does the other side want that are, that are in the category of things that you could allow them to have or help them obtain that are not inimical to your ultimate goal? So. When you're involved in a negotiation, um, first of all, recognizing that uh, your view does not mesh the worldview of your opponent. But as in most things in life, there are lots of things that uh, you probably do have in common. For instance, in the litigation context, both parties, in almost every case, have an interest in putting an end to the litigation. Both parties, in almost every case, have an interest in keeping uh, the expenses to a minimum. Both parties, in almost every case, have an interest in at least not appearing to be weak, not appearing to capitulate. And both parties have, if they're honest about it, at least some concern about an adverse outcome, the unpredictability of an adverse outcome. So as you begin to look at ways that you can meet the concerns and objectives of the other side without giving up the things that are critical to you, um, there's almost always room to get closer. You may not meet, but there's always room to get closer. How about uh, dealing with difficult opposing counsel? And when I say difficult, uh, there are other words <laughs> that I could use, right. but that category of the person that when you wake up in the middle of the night, you're thinking about someone like that? Well, I think it's probably one of the most challenging aspects to the practice of law. I think, first of all, um, you've got to recognize that you're not, you're not going to let that kind of behavior carry the day. But the, so the question is, how do I do that without, you know, the old expression of, you know, when two things happen when you wrestle with a pig, you both get dirty and the pig likes it. Um, so you got to resist the temptation to wrestle with the pig while still standing your own ground. But the pig's calling me into the pen. He is, or she is. And uh, it takes a lot of uh, 
self-will and determination to resist the temptation to get in there. But I would say you must do it. You must do it because it is the most important factor that is going to stay with you. And you can do that by setting your own boundaries. The court can do it uh, where the lawyers can't or failed, failed to do it. But most of the time, what I see is not an effort to require the, the other side to conduct him or herself in a, in a positive professional way. I see really two other responses that are not helpful. And the first is, as you say, getting drawn into the pen and engaging in tit for tat. Uh, the second is what I call the uh, kindergarten monitor approach, which is to immediately, I'm gonna call, I'm gonna call the teacher. I'm gonna call the judge. I'm gonna get the judge on the phone. I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna talk to the bar about you. I'm gonna, I'm gonna get someone else to help me take care of your behavior. You, well, you're there. It's your responsibility to take charge of the situation and it's your responsibility to reflect good behavior, which I think in those instances when there's a tirade on the other side to put a, put a stop to it, uh, when witnesses are being abused to make sure that you make a clear record that the witness is being abused and to in a, in a professional and civil way put a stop to the proceeding if that needs to be done. Um, and I say in a civil way, there's a positive way to do it, there's a negative way to do it. Um, but you have to be willing to step up and say, this is not a question of defendant versus plaintiff. This is a question of, this is wrong. What's happening here is wrong. And it's wrong not because of what we're litigating about. It's wrong because it is poor behavior. It is rude, it's, it reflects badly on you, it reflects badly on me, and it's not the way to run a railroad and I'm not gonna be a part of it. And it's a hard thing to do, but it's a critically important thing to do if at the end of your career you're gonna to wanna to be able to look back and say, I'm proud of the way I handle myself in that kind of situation. That's good. Uh, totally off grid out of the law for a second and then I'll come back. Uh, parenting advice. Be home for dinner. Uh, I know that sounds like a small thing, uh, but uh, you know, the dinner table uh, is where it's, that's, that's the fulcrum of things that happen around the house, especially whether you have one working parent or two working parents, uh, many two working parent households these days. That having been said, um, it's really critically important to make yourself a part of your children's life. And again, go back to what I talked about in terms of client selection, being mindful that your time is your most valuable resource. You know, children are not idiots. You know, they, they want you to be a part of your life. Uh, they want you to value the things that are important to them. When you don't show them that you value what's important to them by the gift of your presence and your time, they get it. They understand that what is important to them is not important to you, or at least as not as important to you as whatever it is that you're doing. And I know the common retort for that is, well, how do you do that and work to become partner? And how do you generate 2,500 billable hours a year? And how do you how do you do all these things? And what I would tell you is that it can be done, but again, it takes a great deal of intentionality. 
let's let me uh, kind of take a couple big questions and and the the first is a group of uh, let's just say they're lawyers 25 to 35 they're in their earlier parts of their careers if you could give them uh, one sound bite of advice what would you tell them don't let somebody else whether it's your work life or anybody else in your life uh, define who you are or what you do that's that's and there are many there are many offshoots of, to that but that's that's that would be my my first and uh, and uh, um, most emphatic advice don't let somebody tell you you're a transactional lawyer don't let somebody tell you you're a commercial litigator don't let somebody tell you that you're a you know that you're a female um, and you can only do these things don't let somebody tell you that you're you know black and you can do these things or that you're you know a short fat white guy and you can only do these things uh, you know don't let somebody else define who you are what you can do that's great let's take a second category these are uh, folks say 35 to 50 they're beyond the initial stage of their career they're they're settled um, but they have a lot more to go yeah. what advice would you give them be able to discern when you're getting stale and do something about it. Um, you got, as you said, many gifts that you've acquired uh, through the experience that you developed both in work and life and, you know, whatever else you do as far as an investment of your time. Uh, figure out a way uh, to do something new and different that's going to rejuvenate you and, uh, and, and get you interested in uh, being the best person that you can be. Because we're all at our best when we're doing things that we think are important and significant, whether it's with our family or whether it's our work or in our community. When you find yourself not feeling like you're doing that, do something about it. Uh, if you were to be giving young folks advice on how to be a good mentee, in other words, how can they be someone that uh, the people who are at the top of their game want to invest their time and energy into that person? Uh, what do you think it takes to be a good mentee? Well, it takes uh, it takes good people skills in the sense that uh, you need to be receptive to constructive criticism. Uh, you need to be able to you know it's hard to be it's hard to be a good leader if the people that you're going to be leading won't aren't willing to be led. Uh, so you have to be uh, I think open uh, to you know, new ideas and and interested in improving yourself. It's like we were talking about writing. If uh, if you look at every aspect of your life the way you look at writing, which is to recognize that probably my first draft is not the best that I can do, um, then I think that makes you a good mentee. Uh, if recognizing even if you do a job and you do it well and you're given praise for it, uh, recognize you probably could do it better if, if you did it over again or if you did it in a different way or you approached it with a different outlook. Um, so seek those things out. Uh, be willing to have your work, whether it's your writing or whatever else you do, be willing to have it critiqued and be willing to make yourself vulnerable. What are you optimistic about in this season of your life? I love what I'm doing. Um, I feel like I'm doing, you know, significant, important work. Uh, I love my job. I love the environment. Uh, you mentioned working with my clerks. Uh, it keeps me young. I love them. They become like a part of my family. Uh, they inspire me. Uh, they keep me up on popular culture. They uh, uh, keep me, you know, they, 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 they remind me of the importance of a sense of humor. Um, I love watching them leave here and go look at the things that they accomplish. So when I become, which I do, uh, demoralized about the current state of affairs, about our inability seemingly to get anything done, 
when I come back and I look at what these young people represent, I, I realize that uh, there are solutions out there and these folks probably have them or will, it's, will at least uh, be making an effort uh, to, to find those things that uh, uh, unify us as a nation, nation as opposed to those things that divide us. And so that gives me, that gives me a great sense of optimism. So I'm, I'm uh, very blessed by that. Fantastic. And uh, I really appreciate your time, the impact you've made in my life, uh, many other lawyers, uh, the father that you are and the husband that you are. And thank you for your service. Thanks for sitting down with me. I hope you enjoyed that. I, I really did. Um, I particularly enjoyed uh, Judge Dalton's parenting advice about getting home for dinner. I have found in my own personal life being intentional about a consistent dinner time has really impacted my marriage, uh, my kids, frankly my own quality of life. So I hope that touches someone out there. I also enjoyed uh, Judge Dalton's reminder of being simple and direct in our writing. I think sometimes we all can be obtuse and so worried that we miss an argument that we forget to focus on what is really the most effective argument. I hope you enjoyed it. Thanks for listening.